Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. No, you did not hear me incorrectly. Yes, I said turn to the book of Leviticus. And no, I'm not trying to run people off from our church, at least intentionally. We are indeed going to preach through the book of Leviticus and to anticipate everyone's reaction, we went ahead and named the series, Why Leviticus? Why Leviticus? Why? Out of all the wonderful books of the Bible and encouraging passages of Scripture, why would we devote our precious Sunday morning time to the book of Leviticus, the book that is notorious for ending many a New Year's resolutions to read through the Bible in a year. Why? The book that has entire chapters devoted to skin diseases and other bodily functions. Why Leviticus? Well, I'm going to tell you why. But I'm going to need you to give me five weeks, okay? Yes, we are going to do the whole book in five weeks. Some have said that's crazy. I say that's mercy. Uh, Over the next five weeks, I'm going to make a case for why Christians should read and know and even come to appreciate the book of Leviticus. I actually planned out this series over a year ago. So I, I put it out of my mind. And until a few months ago, I looked at the preaching schedule and I saw it there looming. Uh, to be honest, it was kind of like looking at your calendar and seeing you have a dentist appointment coming up. Like, you know you need it, but it's like, oh, it's coming. I began having second thoughts about my decision, decision and wondering, you know, what in the world I'd possibly say. But as we began to wind down our series through Exodus and we walked through the tabernacle and the priesthood, it all started to come together for me. And I started to see, man, this is important. And coming right after Exodus, it's the perfect time to walk through Leviticus. So I began to study and dive in and I actually started to get uh, excited just a little bit. Uh, I began to see God's intention with this book. Look, I believe that all of the Bible is God's word, that all of it is given to equip us for every good work. I believe as a follower of Jesus that every verse points to him and shows us how to better follow him. But as I've told you before, some parts of the Bible take a little more effort than others to get to the application for us today. And if we're honest, we all tend to spend time in the books we like and understand and avoid the ones we don't. And Leviticus is at the top of that list for many people. So, five weeks, all right? Five weeks, that's it. And I hope we can all walk away with a new appreciation for God's word. Some sort of understanding of Leviticus and and most importantly, a greater love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we're taking this book in big chunks, today we will tackle the first seven chapters. So I hope you don't have any important lunch plans. Um, Kidding, but the title of today's message is this. It's, It's the high cost of living. If you were here last week when we ended the book of Exodus, we saw that at this point in Bible history, God was now dwelling with his people, the Israelites, in the tabernacle that they had built for him. This was the God who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, led them in the wilderness, descended in all his glory on Mount Sinai, given them the Ten Commandments and the law, and now his glory had descended on this tent in the middle of their camp. God was now living with his people. How was that going to work? Especially with all we've learned about God's holiness and man's sinfulness, especially Israel's sinfulness. 
I mean, these were the folks who couldn't make it a month without worshiping a golden calf. How could this be possible? First seven chapters of Leviticus explain how it was possible. And they tell us of the high cost for the Israelites to live with God. As a family of now five, I know all about the high cost of living. Uh, My wife and I, like all of you, have watched the cost of everything go up and up over the last few years. Uh, We've looked at our budget several times and thought, okay, we're going to have to increase that line and and that line. It's no secret that we're dealing with the highest inflation in the last 40 years. Now, some level of inflation is to be expected. It's the way the economy works. Over time, prices go up. And I've always found it interesting when people who are older than me say, oh, man, back in my day, this is how much we paid for a tank of gas. So to make us all feel really sad and some of us a little old, I went online and looked back at what the prices used to be. 50 years ago, how many of you were alive? No, no, don't answer that. Never mind. I'm going to get in trouble with that one, so stay away from that. But 50 years ago, think about this. 50 years ago, you could get a gallon of gas for 36 cents. Gallon of milk was 89 cents. A loaf of bread was a quarter. And you could buy a brand new car for $2,500. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, man, that must have been so nice. But look, we know the average salary was a lot lower as well. As, As wages go up, prices go up, that's how it works. So all of us, whatever time we live in, we learn that the cost of living can be pretty high. So what was the high cost of living for Israel? Not financially, but spiritually. What did it cost for them to live with God who was holy, 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 the creator of the universe? Well, the cost was a series of offerings given at the tabernacle for different occasions and different reasons and in different ways, but all for the purpose of making a way for a holy God to live with his sinful people. So let me start by reading the first seven chapters of Leviticus aloud. I'm kidding again. I'm not going to read it all. That was just testing your commitment. Instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to do a flyover of these chapters. And I'm going to hit along the way the five offerings that God instructed Israel to bring to him. Now let's get an understanding. What were they like? What did they entail? And then we'll ask the key question. What do they mean for us today? Look with me at Leviticus chapter 1. And start in verses 1 through 3. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted, accepted before the Lord. Notice that God is now speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting or what's called the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was God's earthly throne room. Though God is present everywhere, he chose to manifest his glory in this room in the center of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle is the setting for the entire book of Leviticus. This gives this book a unique importance. And think about it, as the center book of the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus in the center, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the entire book takes place at the centermost point for Israel, which was the tabernacle. 
That means Leviticus is actually the mountaintop of the first five books of the Bible. We need to keep that in mind. It's important. Also with the setting being completely at the tabernacle, there's, there's very little narrative in this book. There's not a lot of movement. That's one reason it can be difficult to read. It's almost entirely God's instructions to Moses from his earthly throne. This is also what made it so significant to God's people. This was God's holy word given from the most holy of places, and it taught them how to worship God in holiness. As I said, these first seven chapters show us the five offerings that God commanded the people to make. The first one we just saw was called the burnt offering. That's what chapter 1 covers, and it was the most common offering given to God. As its name implies, the burnt offering entailed burning a sacrificed animal completely before the Lord. Being given fully to God, it symbolized the worshiper's full devotion to the Lord. One thing we notice with this offering is that is true of the others as well, is the ability to bring a different animal for the offering based on your financial standing. Those who were wealthier could bring a bull. Those who were less wealthy could bring a sheep or goat. And those who had little could bring a bird. Now, this shows us that God made a way for everyone, regardless of what they had or didn't have, to come to him in worship. Chapter 2, we have the second offering, which was called the grain offering. Look at Leviticus 2, verses 1 through 3. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of his frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings." The grain offering was usually given alongside other types of offerings. And, and notice, unlike the burnt offering, it was not completely burned up. But some of it functioned as food for the priest. The grain offering was intended to be an expression of trust in God, where you recognized his goodness and providence in your life, and you gave back to him some of what he had given to you. In that way, this one was similar to how we think of an offering today. Third offering we see in chapter 3 is the peace offering. If you remember back in Exodus, after the Israelites sinned with the golden calf, we learned about the peace offering and how it was customary in this time to celebrate a covenant relationship with a meal, kind of like a wedding reception. Y'all remember that? So the peace offering was actually eaten like a meal with some of the animal being given to God and the rest enjoyed by the worshiper and the priest. It symbolized the fellowship and covenant relationship that God had with the person making the sacrifice. Fourth offerings in chapter 4, it was called the sin offering. Look at Leviticus 4, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins... Thus bringing guilt on the people. Then he shall offer for the sin that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. As the name suggests, this was an offering given after an unintentional sin was committed. Unintentional meaning a sin that was not premeditated or preplanned. 
And depending on who committed the sin, that determined the animal that was offered and what the priest did with it. There were sacrifices to cover the leaders, the common people, and the nation as a whole. This offering featured the sprinkling of blood on the altar, which symbolized the purification of sin. So whoever committed that unintentional sin, they could be atoned for and made right with God. Fifth and last offering we see, the end of chapter 5 is the guilt offering. Look at Leviticus 5, verses 14 through 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. The guilt offering was similar to the sin offering in that it was intended to be made after someone sinned. Except this offering also included a payment of restitution for the loss of the one sinned against. For example, if a person stole money from someone, part of their guilt offering would be paying that person back plus 20%. And then you would bring the animal sacrifice to the Lord. Finally, in chapters 6 and 7, we have the instructions for what the priests were commanded to do with each offering. So it goes back through them again from the priest angle that time. And then we have the conclusion, last part at the end of this section, Leviticus 7, verses 37 and 38. He sums it up like this. He says, This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai. On the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So there we go. We see the five offerings listed, plus the ordination offering, which was a kind of grain offering when the priests were ordained. And that right there completes the first major section of the book of Leviticus. If you're still with me this morning, say, I am. I know that's a lot of information. <laughs> but let's just boil it down. Simply put, you got a series of offerings given as sacrifices so that sinful people could have a relationship with a holy God. Here's the big question for us. Why? Why all these sacrifices? Why is this in Leviticus? Why is this written down and recorded in our Bibles today? And what does this have to do with me? We didn't bring any animals today that I'm aware of. And I'm certainly not going to ask you to come down to the altar and make any of these sacrifices after our building cleanup team would not be happy about that. So we clearly don't see these chapters as direct commands for us to obey today as Christians. Why then should we even worry about this section of the Bible? Well, why these offerings are no longer required for Christians living under the new covenant, they do serve a purpose. Even though Jesus has put an end to these sacrifices, they are still important for us to know because here's why. They are like signs pointing us to something greater beyond themselves. It reminds me of the, the signs that you see on the interstate. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, when I lived in Tennessee, I drove down Interstate 40 many times, going back and forth between West Tennessee, where I lived for several years, back to Middle Tennessee, where I was from. 
And you always pass the exact same signs on the interstate. You know, I just I, you get memorized what's coming. I can still see them in my head. Uh, there were the signs for the various rest stops along the way. The signs for Cracker Barrel. Praise the Lord for Cracker Barrel. Best place to stop on a road trip. Then there were signs for all the little small towns in Tennessee, like the one we always laughed at called Bucksnort. Yes, there is really a Bucksnort, Tennessee, and I would not suggest stopping there if you pass through. But the, the, the point of the signs on the interstate was not to draw you to the sign itself, but rather to point you to something else, to the rest stop or to Cracker Barrel or, yes, to Bucksnort. The sign was marking the way, directing you to something greater beyond itself. The sign was saying, hey, don't stop here, but keep going on in this direction to this destination. Guys, that's why we have the sacrifices of Leviticus still in our Bibles today. They are signs pointing us to a greater destination, pointing us to some of the most important truths we could ever know. So in the time we have left, let me give you three quick things, three quick truths that the sacrifices point to today. Here's the first. Number one, number one, the sacrifices point to man's sin. When I read through these seven chapters, the very first thing that strikes me is, man, that is a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, you got to do this with this part of the animal and that with that part of the animal. You got to put this here and that there. And everything was so specific. It took time, it took effort, it took attention to detail. It's really quite overwhelming. And I'm sure the Israelites felt that way at times. But that's because this is meant to point us to the depth and seriousness of people's sin. The entire existence of the sacrificial system demonstrated the sinfulness of humanity and their inability to fix themselves. Because if people weren't sinful, there'd be no need for a sacrifice. Israelites, they could have just walked right into God's presence, had a good chat. They could have lived with him just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But they couldn't do that because they were sinners and sin separates us. And that's where we are today. We're sinners too. And one thing the Bible makes abundantly clear is that every single person on this planet is a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all, how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has a perfect standard of right and wrong, and all of us choose wrong instead of right. We rebel against God and his good design. Okay, so I'm a sinner. But why does sin require a sacrifice? I mean, God is loving and gracious. Can't he just overlook it or just ignore our sin? Why does a sacrifice need to be made for sin? That's because God is perfectly just. And we understand this, don't we? When someone breaks the law, they rob someone or kill someone, the justice system is designed to bring justice to the one who was wronged. So the earthly judge, he sentences the guilty person to prison or probation or a fine of some sort. What would we say about the judge who lets the person guilty of murder just go free? Would we call that gracious or loving to the victim? No, we'd say that that judge is corrupt and evil. Look, if that's true of justice in a fallen, sinful world, how much more true is that of a perfectly just God? If sinning against other sinners brings consequences, then how much greater are the consequences for sinning against an infinitely holy God? God must deal with sin or else he would not be just and fair. He must punish the guilty or else he would cease to be good. 
So that means there must be a payment for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That word wage just, just means payment. It means there's a cost to the choices we make in life, to our sin. And something or someone has to pay the price. That was the point of the animal sacrifices. The animal gave its life in place of the sinner. The animal died so the person could go free. And the gruesomeness of the details we read about these sacrifices, I think they should shock us a bit. They should wake us up to the horror of our sin. They, they show us just how costly and destructive my sin is. And it's so easy to see how messed up everybody else is. Like how bad all their sin is. But it's a lot harder to see your own. We often view ourselves and our sin is not that bad. We justify it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Guys, we have sinned against a perfectly holy God who created us, who gave us life, who gave us everything we have, not once, not twice, too many times to count. And we deserve nothing less than his full justice being carried out on us. So in light of our sin, why are we still alive? Why aren't we making sacrifices here today so our sins can be dealt with until next Sunday? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But here's the second thing. The sacrifices point to number two. Sacrifices point to God's grace. Really? Grace? <laughs> what is gracious about all this animal killing? It's easy to read these chapters and walk away thinking that God is just some demanding, harsh, bloodthirsty deity. And people do think that. But to do so is to completely misunderstand who God is. Here's what we have to get. God doesn't need us. He is not obligated to have a relationship with us or give himself to us in the slightest. He could easily look at your sin or my sin and just turn away and give up. He could rightfully and fairly leave us on the path we're on to hell and say, sorry, and let us suffer forever. That's what we deserve. That would be fair. So the very fact that God came down to his people and spoke to them is grace. The fact that he showed them what it takes to be with him is grace. And the fact that he provided this system to keep their relationship going is grace. My son Calvin is seven months old now. And this last week he started really crawling. You know, there's that phase where they kind of do like this army wiggle thing. But he's like really going now. And I mean, he's, he's all over the place. He's getting into everything. His favorite thing to do is go into the dining room and try to find the crumbs that his siblings have dropped under the table from dinner. I call him like a little scavenger. He's just getting into everything. So we, so we let him crawl. We let him explore and learn. It's part of growing up. But we're careful to make sure there's no little toys he can put in his mouth. And we have a baby gate at the stairs. And when he gets into something that he shouldn't, we pick him up and we move him to another location. And I know he's looking at me sometimes. He gets mad. He looks at me. He's like, man, let me be. I'm trying to crawl. Let me, leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. And he doesn't realize that the structures we've put into place are actually designed to keep him safe and help him. And they won't be necessary forever. Eventually, we'll take the baby gate down and let him go. See, that's how the sacrifices function for Israel. It was a temporary system designed to protect them in this stage of history. It kept their sinfulness in check so that they could live with their holy God for the time being. 
So the sacrifices, as barbaric as they may seem to us today, actually show us that God is a gracious God who desires a relationship with his people even when they don't deserve it. God makes a way for us to come to him when there would be no other way otherwise. And we see that most clearly in this last point. Here's a third thing that the sacrifices point to. Number three, the sacrifices point to Jesus' sacrifice. When Jesus came on the scene in the first century A.D., he was born as a Jewish man, very familiar with these Levitical sacrifices. In fact, as a young Jewish boy, he would have memorized these. He and the authors who wrote the New Testament, they knew all about these sacrifices. So they made connection after connection, showing how Jesus was what the Old Testament sacrifices ultimately pointed to. He was the fulfillment, particularly in his death. See, when Jesus died, he did what the animal sacrifices in Leviticus did, but in a true and better and ultimate way. Listen to what the New Testament tells us about Jesus tells us Jesus was the firstborn male of his family, just like the animal sacrifices. He was spotless or perfect, without blemish, just like the animal sacrifices. He was given voluntarily, just like the animal sacrifices. He died as a substitute in place of sinners, just like the animal sacrifices. And he was sacrificed to God before God, just like the animal sacrifices. Jesus was completely consumed like the burnt offering, giving himself completely even to the point of death. Jesus said he was the bread of life, like the grain offering, a fragrant incense to God. Jesus was the sacrifice that brought us peace with God, like the peace offering. Jesus paid for our sins by the sprinkling of his blood, like the sin offering. And Jesus paid the ransom required to forgive our debt, like the guilt offering. Do you see how all of this points to Jesus? But unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus was the offerer and the offering. He gave himself. And unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus was a perfect man, able to perfectly represent us. And unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus was God who has existed from all eternity. And unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus only had to be offered once for all time. And unlike the animal sacrifices, his blood covered every sin, past, present, and future. And unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again and is alive today. And he's interceding for us even now. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all these sacrifices. So if you're tracking with me this morning, here's what we've seen. Here's what Leviticus has shown us. We are all sinners who have offended a holy God and rightly deserve his justice and can do nothing on our own to fix it. But God is a gracious God who desires a relationship with us despite our sin. So he made a way for us to know him by sending and sacrificing his own son Jesus on the cross in our place, paying our sin debt and declaring all those who trust in Jesus to be forgiven forever. This is why Leviticus is in your Bible. I'm not sure we could fully understand and appreciate the death of Jesus without this background in mind. So like the entire Bible, Leviticus was written to point us to Christ and our need for him. He's the whole point. It's all about him. So the question is, how will you respond? 
For those of us who have already trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we should read Leviticus with a renewed appreciation for Christ. To live on the other side of the cross and resurrection. To not have to worry about these regular sacrifices. And to know that all our sins are covered by Jesus fully. That should bring us immense gratitude. What we have in Jesus is amazing and it should never cease to bring us to worship him. But if you've not made that decision to trust in Jesus yet, I want you to know today that you can call on him and give him your life and trust in him. This message from Leviticus and how it points to Jesus is for you. Maybe you've heard about Jesus and his death on the cross. Maybe you've heard someone say to you, hey, Jesus died for you. But you never really understood what that meant. Maybe today for the first time you see what Jesus has done for you. You see your sin and your need for a Savior and you see one in Jesus. If that's you, I want to plead with you, don't wait. Don't wait to come to Jesus today. Trust in him with your life. He's done everything you need. His death was enough. Trust in him and your sins will be forgiven and your life will be changed forever. You can do that today. Let's bow our heads right now.